0: Welcome to our weekly Power Lounge, your place to hear authentic conversations from those who have power to share. My name is Amy Vaughn, and I am the owner and chief empowerment officer of Together Digital, a diverse and collaborative community of women who work in digital and choose to share their knowledge, power, and connections. Join the movement at www.togetherindigital.com. Let's get started. Today, we're helping you unleash the power of brand love with Lydia Michael, entrepreneur, speaker, consultant, and author of Brand Love, Building Strong Consumer Brand Connections. As the founder of Blended Creative, a multicultural marketing and branding consultancy, Lydia Michael empowers companies and organizations to develop inclusive brands and impactful marketing strategies. With a wealth of experience collaborating with renowned brands like Deloitte, L'Oreal, and Germany, Lydia's experience has earned her numerous awards in diversity and marketing. And her groundbreaking book, Brand Love Building Strong Consumer Brand Connections. She unveils a transformative model that explores the emotional and rational drivers fostering enduring consumer brand relationships, which is something as marketers and advertisers, we all strive to do. So we're all very excited to have you here with us today. Lydia, thanks for being here. Of course, we've got a great series of questions for you. And as always, we have our live listening audience with us. Please let us know if you have questions, drop it into the chat. Let us know where you're listening from. We always love to to hear from our live listening audience. But let's just start with a little bit about your background, Lydia. How did you become passionate uh, about developing um, inclusivity in brands and
1: marketing strategies? Yeah. So I think a lot of that really started that journey of, of multicultural marketing and inclusive marketing started when I came back from Germany. So Um, I was originally born and raised there. I decided to spend another two years there for grad school. And so on my way home to the U.S., I was trying to find my next opportunity, my next gig. And as luck has it, (laughs) didn't really find what I was looking for um, that I was really passionate about, at least. And so I decided to combine both my passion and my experience, which a lot of that was international marketing, but then also I had a side business that I was running, continuing to run while I was in Germany, focused on cultural and linguistic training services for automotive expatriates. So there was a lot of culture in that space, mm-hmm. but really not marketing. And so I wanted to find something where I can bring both of those things under one umbrella. And so after doing a little bit of research, I saw that multicultural marketing is legit. You know, It's a thing that companies do. And so I felt like that was really the right space for me to tap into, and so I decided to create Blended Collective, and that's that's where I am now.
0: That's awesome, and I love what you said there—kind of um, bringing together your skill set and your passions. I think so often we don't tend to recognize that very yeah. often, much less take action on it. So, um, give us a little bit more though, about kind of like the journey and how things have been so far and what kind of work you're doing at blended creative. And then we're going to get to the brand love stuff. Cause I want to hear more about that.
1: Yeah. So it's blended collective. collective. I'm sorry. I do that. Every <laughs> so many time. people do that. It's so funny. <laughs> um, and it makes sense. Right. Um, but yeah, so the work that we're focused on is really helping companies and organizations, um, diversify their marketing and infuse culture into their marketing journey. So what Mm -hmm. that looks like for a lot of brands, it could be helping build a brand from scratch. So whether it's the visual identity, but also the entire marketing experience and the marketing plan and and strategy. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes clients come to us for a one-off where they're already established, but they might be looking to rebrand, or they might need help with a marketing or simply um, making their content and their messaging sound more um, attractive to different audiences that they're looking to reach, right? And so um, we help with all of those, all of those different things. Essentially, it's culture meets emotion in your marketing journey is where we're focused.
0: That's so cool. I think there's something, there's a lot of uh, things that I'm fascinated about that with because- you know, I think we we get so focused on our our brand and our own market and understanding and knowing our culture and society. This kind of multicultural lens and perspective, yeah. I think it's just kind of a fun, unique, and interesting challenge to have to kind of bring that into play for brands so they can really have global appeal. Um, that's really awesome. It's such a great place to kind of live and work. I love it. All right. Let's talk a bit about brand love then. Can you explain the concept of brand love as it's presented in your book and why it's critical for marketers to cultivate emotional connections with their customers?
1: Yeah. So the concept of brand love, you know, if you were to put it into Google right now or or look it up in a dictionary, it's not a a firm concept in terms of, you know, this, this straight definition that you get. And for that reason, I wanted to introduce my own definition that I think will make a lot of sense for businesses and individuals to really use in the industry. And so at the start of the book, I describe brand love in three different ways. In the simplest terms, it's a connection, an emotional connection between consumers and a brand, right? And so if we take it one step further, it also focuses a lot on affection, and brand desire. So really that desire and that affection that you have as a customer to connect with a brand. And then the third part is really focused on that long-term, long-lasting connection that we want to create with, with our customers, but that also result in brand loyalty and advocacy. So that really is what brand love is all about. Um, there was a second part to your question too. I think that was focused around why it's important to create these emotional connections, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think a a lot of times we're, you know, it used to be where companies used to be so focused on creating whatever they're selling and they would put it out there and they just expect the people to buy. Right. You can't do that anymore. Um, It's, it's a lot of it has moved from transactional to emotional. And Mm -hmm. so really it's all about the feeling Um, A friend of mine just sent me uh, a reel this morning on Instagram. And that really inspired me for this answer, actually. And it said that we are never really selling a product or a service. It doesn't matter what industry you're in. What you're selling is a feeling. Mm -hmm. And so as long as you know what people want to feel, you'll Mm -hmm. always be able to sell. I love that. And I forgot who said that, but I just, I think I um, reposted it on my, um, on my mm. story too. So if, if you're interested, take a look there, but um, I think that that's so true. And that is really, it's all about the emotion when we're, when we're selling, when we're marketing. And that's what a lot of, uh, a lot of what I talk about in the book is really about that. How can you focus on the emotional side? But then I tap into the rational side too.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, I think it's, um, shoot, I'm going to misquote the stat, but I know that like, I think it's like 80 some percent, maybe plus percent of purchase decisions are emotional. Another, um, maybe complimentary book or a great book to check out is um, another guest that I had interviewed, Nancy Harhut, a while back, um, talks about um, uh, like how to the science of behavioral science um, for our marketers. And she mm-hmm. talks a lot about how, when we're in a purchasing state of mind, uh, the, the times that we make the most immediate decisions is when we're in a, like what she calls like a hot state yeah. where something is making us mad because we need this thing because it need, has a need. But what we don't acknowledge sometimes, like you're saying is that that need has a lot of emotion and feeling behind it. Yeah. And so if you're just trying to sell the product or service, you're not meeting the need completely. You're just helping check the box for the thing that they need, but you're not helping satisfy that emotional need. Um, So I think that's a tremendous insight and I'm excited um, to to kind of hear more about how you're seeing that. And I also think there's something interesting in the way of talking about brand love and affinity and loyalty and how, you know, um, so many of us become loyal because now we believe if, if a brand has a similar set of beliefs, um, practices that we will choose them over others, regardless of price, often because we believe their values align with our values, which is a very emotional way to go about choosing making purchase decisions and choices. But clearly, that's been the direction we've all been trending towards. So it makes sense. Yep. in your research and in your interviews with brands like uh, Huda Beauty, Lego, and Toyota, what are some of the common strategies and practices that are success that these successful brands use to evoke emotions and build strong connections with their customers?
1: Yeah. So the, the brands you mentioned are some really interesting ones. And I have case studies about all three of them in the book and I like them because they're all so different, but they Mm -hmm. get the point across in a very different way yet all for the same reason to connect with your customers on an emotional level. Mm
0: -hmm. So with
1: Huda beauty um, and for those that are not familiar with the brand, it's a beauty cosmetics brand and it was created by a blogger. Um, who, and now it's one of the most independent, successful beauty brands in the world, right? I mean, competing with with some of the mainstream brands. And mm-hmm. so looking at their marketing and the way they choose to be authentic and raw and the owner, Huda herself, is still very much the face of the brand. Mm-hmm. And so it's very one-on-one with, with customers, with people on social media. You know, there's been issues in the past um, where the brand chose to go live on Instagram and, you know, share the backstory of what had happened. And that really created this connection, um, where they're allowing themselves as a brand to be very transparent, to be very honest. uh, and those are all values that allow you to be successful as a company on the way to brand love, right? There's a lot more, uh, a lot more examples and drivers that this brand specifically encompasses, um, Mm -hmm. both emotional and rational, actually that makes it a success, I think. Um, but Mm -hmm. those, you know, are some that, that come to mind. It's just this rawness, this authenticity, this honesty that, um, really consumers crave. And the minute you are not that way, they can pick up on that and they have the power to abandon you and go look for a different brand, right? Yeah. And so that is, I think, a very powerful strategy to choose to center your brand around those values. Mm-hmm. Um, brands like Lego and Lego, one of the biggest toy makers in the world, has been around for you know decades. Um, it's mm-hmm. not just a brand for kids, but it's also a brand oh, yeah. that adults love. You oh, know? Yeah, um, absolutely, and they also market to adults. So mm-hmm. um, with them. I talk about one of the initiatives, um, Build Day, World Build Day, where they wanted to encourage people, and it's every December that that happens, they encourage people to build and share what they've built with the world through the use of a hashtag. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot more to the case study, but that's sort of um, you know focused around not just connecting with your family and friends, but also um, the value of collaboration and, and different things that... Make that brand a success, right? And so that's what I talk about there. And then Toyota um, was another brand you asked about. So, Toyota, obviously, in the automotive space, very different from the two other ones I just described. But Toyota um, is an interesting one because one, it's a very multicultural brand uh, globally. Mm -hmm. And so that's one reason why I wanted to talk about that brand. But also, when I talk about the emotional driver of humanization, Toyota is, is number one to me from what I've seen. So I went to the Detroit auto show a few years back, and this is probably now four years ago or so. And I remember seeing um, an exhibit of the car and how the car was described as having a soul. Mm. And so there was a humanizing aspect to the car, having a soul and connecting with the driver. Mm-hmm. So it's not just about getting in your car and getting from point A to point yeah. B anymore. It's about how can the car through AI technology, all of these, di- these different ways connect with the driver and really understand who is that person sitting behind the wheel and how yeah. can I make sure that they're satisfied when they're driving and that I talk to them. I mean, literally talk to them. <laughs> um, yeah. And that they're happy and, you know, maybe in order for them to, um, be happy today on their drive, they need to take route Mm -hmm. a instead of B. And so I make sure that they do that, right. Really this, this Mm -hmm. communication and this connection between a vehicle and the person and and that humanization of the soul, um, I think to me makes Toyota just really stand out in, in the automotive industry. So those are three very different examples. Um, yeah, they are. Read more about yeah. It's it's a whole case study in the book about each one of them, but
0: mm-hmm.
1: that's just a uh...
0: yeah. I mean, having worked myself in automotive for a short time, you live in Detroit, you're gonna end up working on automotive. It, yeah. it was such a. I mean, this was back in 2010, 2011. Just like how far the industry has come in understanding the emotional connection people have with their cars. I mean, you. You get in it every day, you trust your life and your family's life in it every day, just about, we name our cars. Like, I don't know, not everybody does here. Maybe you're all weirded out by that, but (laughs) in my family, they always name their cars. Um, So it kind of just carried through into my family as well, but you're right. There's that emotional connection there. Um, And it's like the more we can help acknowledge that. Um, you know the, the more trust we're going to build with people and ultimately that's what you're looking for is to be that trusted source for folks um, whatever whatever your product or service is. I think what's interesting about these three as well, is two are legacy brands and one's a new brand. I think sometimes, and I'm kind of curious your thoughts about this too, you know, it, it seems like an easy thing to say, okay, we're a brand new brand. We were started by a blogger. So it, authenticity is just kind of like a given, yeah. but then you get brands like Lego and then Lego hasn't had maybe such a troubled past, but Toyota, I mean, I don't know how many of you are old enough to remember, but there was a whole series of events where there were class action lawsuits and issues with Toyota cars, not breaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people were getting into accidents. And so they've had a lot to overcome. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not sure if your case study touches on that, or if that has anything to do with like that impetus towards working towards like the emotional aspect, You know, Um, but I think it's helped.
1: Yeah. I think that there are so many things that have happened in the history of all of those brands. It's really hard in a 200 page book to really focus on all of that. And so what I really hone in on is you know what is the purpose for me to even bring in that brand into the book, and what does the reader need to take away from that? That relates to you know building brand love, brand love right? And so that's really what I focus on. But yeah. with um, you, you mentioned that Huda Beauty is one of the newer brands, um, and also an independently owned brand, right? It's still privately owned, family owned. And so what was really important to me was to not make this a book about corporate America, right? Yeah, it was. It's a book that it talks about. Um, businesses who have been around for decades, large corporations on a global level, but it also talks about, you know, your local neighborhood business here in Detroit and how they've been able to really build brand love. And Mm -hmm. so that was really important for me, especially as a small business owner myself, um, showing how you can do that both as a small business with limited resources, but also yeah. as a corporation, you know, whether you own the business, whether you work for the business um, there's a lot of common strategy and commonalities that you can apply in that formula. So that is something that really comes through in the book is just the diversity mm-hmm. of the type of businesses and industries. Yeah.
0: And I agree. I think it gives me hope. And then I would hope that those that are you know going to pick up the book and read it when you are, I mean, I spent the most of my advertising years working on you know, big brands and sometimes it doesn't feel like change can happen. So this idea of humanizing your brand and bringing brand love into it, you know, I mean, clearly you've got some great case studies that run the gamut of brands that have been able to effectively, you know, kind of make that shift in perception and change, um, the way that they're being perceived. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. All right. So for cultivating a Culturally inclusive consumer brand relationships. Obviously, it's an important aspect that you discuss in your book. Could you share some of the insights or the recommendations that you have for marketers to approach and implement cultural inclusivity in their branding and marketing strategies? Now that we know it can be done in any (laughs) brand, where do we even start?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think culture in general, while culture and inclusivity, right, there's an overlap of the two, but culture Mm -hmm. in general is so relevant to consider in marketing. Mm -hmm. And inclusivity comes along um, in a lot of different ways. One way that I highlight in the book is uh, focusing on supplier diversity and supplier Mm -hmm. diversity. For those who are not familiar is um, a department within procurement at a company. And typically that's at larger companies because they have the resources to really, you know, put money into that. Um, and even though, though those company, those uh, departments are still very small, actually, um, but they are focused around bringing on diverse suppliers to mm-hmm. do business with. And for one, they have to do that because they have to meet um, a certain percentage where they outsource some of that work to. Um, diverse suppliers and diverse suppliers, anybody who knows a minority owned business, a better known business, woman owned, um, you know, anything that falls into that category. And so why that's important and why that helps you become more inclusive is research shows that customers gravitate more towards companies and businesses they support when they see that they are hiring diverse suppliers and are supporting diverse, smaller suppliers Mm-hmm. And so it's a win-win for everybody because not only are, you know, the big guys winning by doing that, right. but it's also that they're inspiring customers to support them. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's sort of this, this domino effect. It just makes everything go round. And so I think that supplier diversity is something that's not spoken about enough. Yeah. Um, that is, is crucial in the space of marketing.
0: That's great. And I, I think a good example of that would be Target. Like the way that they have leaned into designers and, you know, product providers and things like that. And really, truly championing the fact that they're getting diverse suppliers, designers to come in and to work with them alongside them. I think it does create a lot of that brand love that, you know, people feel for Target.
1: It's across all industries, really. Um, You know, it could be the automotive sector. It could be fashion. It could be beauty. It could be really any industry that you think of um, mm-hmm. you know, banks, um, that have, uh, supplier diversity programs. So mm-hmm. really across the board.
0: Yeah, definitely. Is there anything else outside of the supplier diversity?
1: Oh, uh, you know, I think just focusing on cultural diversity in general, um, mm-hmm. thinking about the different groups that you're looking to attract, mm-hmm. um, and how you can connect with all of them, in a very unique and different way, um, because not all customers can be clustered into the same group, even if they're um, yeah. you know, of, of one culture and whatnot, there's still sub-segments to that. And mm-hmm. so I think the more you're able to cater to these groups in a very unique way, um, mm-hmm. the more you're really diversifying and, and creating this inclusivity um, that shows on the outside as well, because people yeah. feel like you're really talking to them and it's something that they can self-identify with, which mm-hmm. self-identification is a big, you know, big topic in, um, and brand love.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about internal diversity? I mean, we're always, you know, advocating for that. I know we're beating a yeah. drunk and beat almost to death, but like you can't enough. Is there any kind of research or studies in your book that talk about internal cultural diversity?
1: There is absolutely. Um, That's really important too. So it's not just about the external because you can try and do everything right on the external. And we've seen brands try and do that. Mm -hmm. Um, But then, you know, their customers will blast them on social media for not really doing that even in house. And so I do, there's a healthy balance of what I talk about in the book to address both diversity and inclusion in house and what that looks like for your team. Um, Mm -hmm. And a lot of it comes from making sure that you're representative of the audiences you're trying yeah. to reach externally. And mm-hmm. that's where we've seen a lot of failed campaigns in the past, marketing campaigns, especially even from, you know, big brands that you would never think they'd make these mistakes. It's not because they <laughs> don't really have the money or the resources. Sometimes it's, they don't have the right resources to put yeah. those campaigns. Yeah. Um, and so that is really important to make sure that the people who are working on those campaigns understand the cultures that they're catering to. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah. And the right
0: amount of representation is so important too. I remember reading some research a while back um, that just really talks about, you know, when you've got uh, a minority in the room, it takes at least three present to actually even begin to feel comfortable speaking up and sharing. Mm. So like, it's not enough to have your token woman or token person of color or token, whatever in the room, you're not, they're not going to feel comfortable and confident enough in most typical senses to be able to speak up. So when you have something that you're putting out there in the way of messaging in our campaign, that's tone deaf, Mm. uh, it might not get called out. So it's like, it's not enough to even just, you know, Um, kind of fall in line with the tokenism, you need to like truly diversify and make sure that from beginning to end, the people that are involved reviewing and engaged in the process um, have a diverse amount of background experience and understanding. So um, I'm going to jump in with a listener question because I think this is a really great one and it's kind of relevant to what we're talking about right now. Cohatch is a new kind of shared work, social and family space built on community. Members get access to workspace amenities like rock walls and sports simulators and more to live a fully integrated life that balances work, family, well-being, community, and giving back. Cohatch has 31 locations open or under construction nationwide throughout Ohio, Indiana, Florida, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Georgia, and Tennessee. Visit www. Cohatch.com for more information. Um, What are some of the metrics or indicators that you use to measure the success of brand love, especially when it comes to incorporating cultural elements? Thanks for the question, Clara.
1: Yeah, Clara, thank you for the question. That is a very good question. And it's an interesting one because in the book, I do explain that I don't go into much detail about measuring brand love because the book really focuses on um, how to create brand love. Mm-hmm. And uh, but to answer your question and I I, I talk about it a little bit um, in the book too, there are a, di- a lot of different ways to measure brand love. Um, and a lot of it is, you know there's brand love index that you can use that companies have or um, different measurement scales. And a lot of it is tied to, uh, doing social listening around the emotional aspect of the brand. Right? analysis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, there's certain language and vocabulary um, words that revolve around what is an indicator that this is brand love. Right. And so it's uh, words like happiness or, you know, positive feelings in general, what are uh, positive feelings that customers elicit when they post about the brand. Right. A lot of times people don't use the term brand love and any of that. Right. Um, I mean, it's just a lot of d- different ways to refer to that, but, you know, focusing on social listening and looking at how customers are talking about your brand and what word choices they are using. And it works in the very, works, works the same uh, way from a negative spectrum too. Right. So what if somebody is not talking good about your uh, your brand online? Right. And so, keeping an eye on that, measuring that and analyzing that is is one way to sort of measure the success of that. But also Clara, to answer your question in a a deeper way, it's when we talk about measuring the success of brand love, there are a lot of different elements that are a part of brand love. And so that's where I talk about different drivers in the book. Um, We can talk about that in more detail here in a sec, but you know, the different drivers in the book um, that contribute to the journey of brand love. Brand love is not just this, you know, result at the end of the journey that you reach and then you're done. It's this constant, ongoing journey where you're always building um, to connect with your customer because customers evolve as much as brands evolve. And so, how can we always make sure? to stay in tune with what our customers are feeling and what their needs are. Um, and you know, as the cultural landscape changes, the environment, everything around us, I mean, the pandemic was a big indicator of that. Mm-hmm. Um, customers didn't purchase in the same way anymore. They didn't care about the same things. Um, mm-hmm. Everything changed in their day-to-day and so their purchases changed. But mm-hmm. brands need to quickly get behind that to really understand and be able to continue to deliver successfully. And so this is why also the measurement, the measure of success changes too.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. That's a great answer. And it reminds me, I said it before, I'll say it again. I heard it from again, someone else, but it's like fall in love with the problem you're trying to solve, not the product or service you're providing
1: yeah. because
0: you have a product or service, but the problem that it's solving changes drastically based on the needs of the consumers. Mm-hmm. Like you said, I mean, people are not purchasing, spending their time nor money in the same way they did before COVID. I mean, we see that even now. Yeah, um, And I think it would continue on. And mm-hmm. so I think continuously being aware and falling in love with the problem you're trying to solve versus your product. yeah, um, It's going to help you be more emotionally appealing and in tune with the needs of your customers so that if you need to shift messaging or positioning, you can do so in a way that's much more effective Absolutely. and probably get a lot more brand love. But let's talk about those drivers because you, you talk about, you know, you have a model in the book that combines both emotional and rational drivers. Can you kind of provide some examples or case studies that demonstrate how successful brands have effectively balanced these drivers to create an enduring brand loyalty and advocacy?
1: Yeah, that's a big question. (laughs) So you've already mentioned both. So I talk about, I introduce two new models in the book. Um, Mm -hmm. One is more so a list that stems from the emotional and rational side of our brain. So the brand love drivers is what I call them. And I introduced 10 emotional and 10 rational drivers. Um, you know, when when people have asked you, are you a right brainer or a left brainer? Mm-hmm. Right. You know what that means is, you know, are you more on the emotional side in your thinking? or Are you more on the rational, logical side? And so I took that as inspiration to create these drivers and talk about brand love in the book. So the emotional and rational drivers I, I introduce are not necessarily to say that there's only 10 by any means. There are more. But for the sake of the book and the length, I had to pick the ones that were more most prominent and also the ones that I've seen really make an impact and affect the journey of brand love. And so I decided to you know, introduce 10 different ones. And um, the emotional ones really focus on things like authenticity, humanization, personalization, sustainability, purpose, right? All of those different things, desire, empathy, all of those different things that are um, you know, affect more of the emotional decision-making process. The rational drivers I talk about could be things like consistency, innovation, convenience, accessibility, right? Um, Relevance, all of those different things, but they're still very important on the journey because we're not just building a successful brand or product with just emotions, right? There's also Mm -hmm. these these functional, rational benefits that are crucial and, and important for us to to connect the dots, and so those are the brand love drivers. The model itself that I introduce that is uh, called the eight brand love stages. And mm-hmm. throughout the book and the examples I give, I take the reader through each stage of of that journey, and I give mm-hmm. brand examples to sort of highlight and support um, those different steps. Um, you know, they're anything from awareness, familiarity. Interest likeness that's sort of the first half, and a lot of that focuses on how you create brand desire. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second half talks about trust, attachment, uh, love, and then the last stage is loyalty and advocacy. And that one's really focused that last half of, of the stages is focused around brand intimacy, right? So mm-hmm. once we've created this desire, now Um, that we have the trust and the love of our customer. And now we can really focus on that brand intimacy, becoming intimate with them. And then throughout all of that, there are elements of self-identification that are really important. So like you said earlier, you know, when I connect with a brand and I see that they have the same core values as me and, and we align and how we think and how we talk and all of those things, I really, I support that brand regardless of the price point. I'm willing to actually spend more to support them because I believe what they believe and they believe what I believe. And so those are all really important things. And that really is the purpose of of the model is for me to offer, you know, not just this academia research in the book, but very much hands-on practical insights of how have brands done that and how can I apply that to my business? And so one really important thread throughout the book as I talk about the drivers and the stages is I like to talk about the brand to consumer connection by comparing it to the personal relationships that we have in our lives. So Mm -hmm. in the same way that, you know, I have to trust you to do business with you and I have to like you and really get to know you and all of those things that we know are true, right? In business, Mm -hmm. they're also true in our personal lives. A lot of a lot of that, there are so many parallels in those two worlds that I continue to draw on in the book, because I think that that makes it a lot more relatable when we look at the brand consumer relationship in the mm-hmm. same lens as the personal relationships that we yeah. have in our lives. Yeah,
0: yeah, definitely. And it reminds me of this, um, this uh, it's a psychological term uh, called parasocial relationships, um, I have a friend who teaches uh, advertising and PR at Xavier mm. University, and she did a talk about this. And I didn't even know such a thing existed, but it makes so much sense when you understand the phenomenon, what it means, and what it is. It's essentially where people become so attached to brands and or people like celebrities that they follow on Instagram or YouTubers that they do truly feel that they have a relationship. It's kind yes. of like the best analogous I can give is like people sitting around the water cooler when friends was on and they'd come to work the next day and they'd start talking about Ross and Rachel and Joey yeah. and a lot of people would be like, do you know these people? Yeah. Well, I mean, no, they're on a show. There it's the friends show, but they're not my friends. But the way we even talk to each other about them sometimes makes it feel like there's more of a relationship there than what there really is. So parasocial relationships is, you know, definitely something like what you're saying here that kind of crosses that line between a true personal one-to-one connection and your connection with a a brand um, or the opinion. of a brand or a personal brand of someone else. Um, Another thing that I love is that you are creating that and talking about that balance of the emotional and the rational, um, because I did listen to another really great hidden brain podcast recently that talks Mm -hmm. about obstacles Mm -hmm. and it was so enlightening because I think I am more, I am definitely probably, I, I fall into the camp of more emotional. Uh, it's it's a more fun space to play when you're an advertiser or marketer. So I do always get excited about sentiment analysis and trying to drive more emotion. Um, but at the end of the day, like there are brands and companies out there that have just kind of lost a number of sales because they aren't meeting the rational needs mm-hmm. and it's not a price point. So one of the examples that they gave was this um, custom couch manufacturer. I think it was in Chicago, mm. and they had it was for young professionals who had small apartments but wanted to have like custom couches and not like cheap, you know, IKEA furniture. Yeah. Not against that. My whole first apartment was nothing but. Yeah. Uh, I love IKEA, but um, what they found is that these folks would come in and they would kind of design and build their couch. Um, but then they wouldn't complete the order. They wouldn't buy. And they're like, why aren't they purchasing? Okay. Our price points too. Like maybe we need to just knock down the price. Yeah. And whoever they were consulting with was like, wait, 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 wait. Like, let's look at what's happening as like through the customer journey. Yes. Um, They came to realize was that uh, all these people live in apartments in Chicago. I lived in an apartment in Chicago. I know what it's like. You don't have elevators. How are you going to get rid of your old couch? Half the time they did not buy because they did not know how to get rid of their old couch so oh, they wow. just had this deal yeah. where if you buy your couch you get a free removal of your old couch and their sales went up like 123%. That's so a like the example. rational, you need to just evaluate the rational as much as the emotional because yeah. otherwise you're promising on the emotional and not delivering on the practical yeah. and that's just going to piss people off.
1: Yeah. Thank <laughs> you for adding that. That's a really good example and that is so true. I mean, really connecting the dots and always making sure it's both emotional and rational, something that I highlight in the book many, many times. It's not just one or the other, but it's how is it a combination of those? And it's not just one driver, you know, one emotional, one rational, there's really no limit. The more the merrier, um, the more I can, you know, tap into being authentic and being purposeful and being sustainable and all of those things, the more you're setting yourself up for success because that's, what's making customers connect.
0: Exactly. Well, and another way they described it that I thought was really interesting is I think I see emotional as fuel, right? Like you're adding fuel to the fire to get them to desire and want something. Um, Whereas like if you don't remove the friction, you can add as much fuel as you would like, but that friction will always remain. So it's all about removing the friction, removing the obstacles. It's like, oh, this is so good. This is so good. So I love you have the balance of the rational and the emotional for as much as I lean to the emotional. Yeah. But yeah, I'm kind of curious, you know, as you've been working through the book and doing your research and just observing, obviously, along with us as like the, the evolution of technology and how it's influenced brands and how we connect with customers. Are there any specific strategies that you feel like brands should consider in the digital space? Technology? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the technology space,
1: yeah. Technology. Yeah. So. It's funny because now that the book is written, I could probably write a whole nother chapter on just (laughs) that, right? Because it's just changing so fast. Um, But I think that now what's really hot and trending is, you know, open AI, chat GPT, Mm -hmm. you know, artificial intelligence, all of that sort of um, utilizing technology across different industries. And for marketers, it's a big deal because, you know, how can I use AI to simplify my day? You know, whether it's content creation, whether it's ideation, that type of thing. Right. So I think that there's a lot of movement towards that and it's in our favor and our benefit to understand how that is going to impact our work as marketers and how we can make sure that we're not going to be replaced. Right. I've seen so many conversations of, Oh, you know, you're replaceable and you're, you know, 10 years from now, I'm not going to need you anymore. Not even 10 years. It's a lot sooner. I would think, but (laughs) uh, I mean, yeah, it's happening. Um, but I think creativity wise, Mm -hmm. intuition wise, there's still Mm -hmm. a lot that we as human beings bring to the table. And Mm -hmm. so the more we understand those tools that are available and Mm -hmm. how we can coexist I think the more we're going to be successful as Mm -hmm. all of that grows. I mean, I definitely touch on technology and AI AI a little bit in the book too, and how a lot of brands use technology to collect data to then personalize the experiences with their customers. You know, Mm -hmm. happened that's nothing new. That's been happening. You know, whether it's your electric toothbrush you're using. And, you know, it's kind of keeping track of your brushing habits and now it's telling you what to do or what not to do to improve the outcome and experience. I mean, you know, it's, yeah. it's a thing.
0: It's definitely, it's hitting at those, those rational and emotional needs. Like you can definitely do it with technology, but I think you're right. And it's definitely been a conversation we've had several times over the last few months through podcasts and other events. Yeah. Um, with the pervasiveness of AI and how it can make life a lot easier, that balance and that making sure that, you're still allowing space for that humanization and that one-to-one contact and connection um, because that's just something that technology and AI can't quite provide um, while it can make other things efficient. People keep saying like, Oh, it's going to take jobs. Blah, blah blah. I was like, no, we can do spend, we can go spend less time being robots and more time being people. And the robots can go be the robots and we can spend the time doing the things that require more emotive thinking or empathy and understanding and uh, rather than being the ones who are the
1: robots. You make such a good point, Amy, because the people that are robots right now and transactional and not emotional in any way, they're very quickly replaceable. But Mm -hmm. you said it right. You know, we have to focus on being more human. It's really going to focus or force us. I don't like the word force, but it's really going to push us Mm -hmm. into being more human and connecting. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. I've got another question in the chat, but I'm going to, let's see, I let's go ahead and read it. So uh, I'm currently writing an article about how small businesses can adopt or adapt corporate practices to enhance their own businesses. I think that's an interesting idea. I'll read it. And I think that brand love uh, identity is a huge one with your experience. What are some things that you feel small businesses should be doing that they aren't. And she says, she'll be sure to read your book by the way. (laughs) Oh
1: yeah. I hope so. Um, so that's a good question. So what are small businesses not doing that they should be doing? Um, you know, I think a lot of times small businesses just assume because they're smaller and they have more limited resources that that kind of blocks or limits their creativity in a way, or even to, Um, really check in with their customers in a more detailed way. And I always encourage small businesses to tap into even their current customer base to understand the needs and wants that their customers have. In working Mm -hmm. with small businesses, I feel like I've come across several of them where they don't do enough research or due diligence in terms of what their market needs or wants. Is this really a product or a service that my customer base needs? Or am I just making that assumption? And I, you know, just off of that, I've seen businesses do that and fail Mm -hmm. because they didn't do that research. And so I say to businesses, you know, if you're, if you have no budget and you're a two man show, a one man show, and you have 10 customers right now go talk to each one of these customers, yeah. go set up an interview, go do this. You know, people think you have to have this big focus group and spend 10, $50,000 to, mm-hmm. you know, get all of these insights, but it's mm-hmm. right around you. So who can you tap into around you and think of diverse groups you can tap into, right? So not just your family and friends, but also just anybody that's buying from you, anybody that can provide feedback. Yeah. And really mm-hmm. use that to feed more of of what you're doing and how you can enhance that. So I think that sometimes is a missed opportunity um, for mm-hmm. a lot of small businesses simply because they think, oh, I'm I'm too small. I can't do these focus groups. I can't do this and that. I can't yeah. put out a survey, you know, that's going to cost me 5000 dollars or more. Um, but you don't have to do that. You know, think yeah. of the resources that you have and how you can utilize that to get the information that you need.
0: Mm-hmm. If small business owners, as you're listening. Library public libraries have free databases with a ton of demographic, psychographic data that you would pay subscriptions. Like some agencies pay probably thousands of dollars a month to have access to, you can get it for free at your public library. So there are some free resources out there for data,
1: even at your university. If you're Mm -hmm. a student or if you have access to a university, um, there's a lot of those subscriptions also that are free that you can utilize. Yeah, yeah,
0: love it. Awesome. Thanks for the question. All right. The next one, given the ever-changing landscape of digital and marketing, what are key takeaways or practical tips from your book that readers can apply to adapt your strategies and continue to build brand love even when times are hard?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Even when times are hard. So I have, I have a specific chapter in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, It's called love brand lockdown. It's the last chapter and it talks about how, in times of challenges and difficulties, and I, I talk a lot about the pandemic because it's obviously something that we all went through, and I think there's a lot of learnings from that, you know, for years to come, of how we need to understand customers' behavior and change that occurs. So, for instance, during the pandemic, a lot of customers focused on brands and companies that made them feel Comfort mm-hmm. and distraction, right? And so, whether that was entertainment, you saw mm-hmm. a lot of people baking their way through the pandemic, right? Yeah. Because they were at home. And so, all of those things suddenly became a key focus in mm-hmm. where customers were spending time and money and all of those things. They were being a lot more selective with the, mm-hmm. the companies they support. And the ones mm-hmm. who knew how to adapt. Right then and there, when moments you know when it was difficult to do so, are the ones that are still around. They're the successful ones because yep. they quickly were able to turn the switch. Mm-hmm. And so I think that is a really strong lesson. I think in line with that, moment marketing is also really powerful that we don't talk about enough. Um, you know, so Delta, and this is a um, another example that I've I've given is you know Delta it was one of the airlines that had a delayed flight for hours and passengers were sitting at the gate and the next thing you know they bought pizza for everybody and delivered mm-hmm. pizza to the gate right and now yeah. you see everybody tweeting and posting on social media yeah. and hashtagging and all of those things and it's it's moment marketing is what it's called it's because yeah. you're understanding and you're reacting in that very same moment to deliver value to your customer Mm-hmm. Right. And so those are the things that really make a difference um, in, I love in that it. journey.
0: Yeah, I love it. I, you, like I was just jotting down something really similar, like meet the moment. Yeah. Hard times. That's the silver lining of hard times as a brand product or service. It's like yeah. you have the opportunity to meet a new set of needs and, and be the hero of the day. And it can yeah. be in such small ways. Like the pizza delivery, I was even watching the other day at the gym. Um, I don't remember what baseball team it was, but there was a boy <laughs> who um, his brother caught the uh, foul ball, and it was the other team's ball, so he threw it back, and his little his brother just fell apart because he really wanted a baseball, and so like the team, like management decided they were going to give the brother who was just destroyed over having the ball thrown back out into the field, his own signed Jersey and a baseball. And they got all this news press and coverage and now everybody's got this good feeling. And now they've got a yeah. more of affinity team. Yeah. I mean, so small little action. It is kind of funny how we think it has to be big sweeping moments, mm-hmm. but sometimes as brands, we can really truly meet the moment in um, the moment with something small that has a ripple effect. But then also we do have that opportunity to look at what we're doing and say, how do we meet the moment here? How do we take our product or service and and make it more accessible, more reachable, more valuable, um, to our customer when things get hard? Because if you don't like what value, like you said, what value are you providing? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And you You don't need to always have a big budget to do that either. No, Mm -hmm. no, no. That's super inspiring.
0: Like I said, I know sometimes, we all get a little burnt out on all of the, you know, between economy, inflation, mm-hmm. COVID, everything. It's a lot, but it's like, there's also a lot of hidden opportunity in there. Right. All right. I've got one last question, and then we'll open it up again to our live listening audience in case they have any other questions.
1: Sure.
0: Uh, as a successful entrepreneur and consultant in multicultural marketing, what advice do you have for some of our listeners who are maybe aspiring to excel in digital marketing, advertising industries?
1: Yeah. So really staying on top of trends mm-hmm. and things are moving so fast right now. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. they always are, but especially now with AI, the whole conversation around that, um, just really staying on top of the industry and understanding how you can continue to evolve with that and fit in. And by fit in, I don't mean, you know, just get in line, but really understanding where can you provide value in that space as that space is evolving and how can you continue to evolve with that? Sometimes you might need to, um, offer a different type of product or service, right. Um, -hmm. to be able to do that. Um, sometimes it could just be adjusting your approach or your process, um, to, continue to be relevant. But relevance is a really, really key value, I think. Um mm-hmm. making sure that we as individuals, but also as companies, um, can stay relevant in everything that we do. It's it's everything at the end is about value. How can mm-hmm. I provide value? As long as you're providing value, you'll always be relevant. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's a great point. And I think one thing you've done Um, extremely well, just kind of looking back at like your history of work and your experience and now publishing the book is how you've been able to kind of take that ability to stay on top of trends and then turn it into thought leadership Mm -hmm. that helps you kind of establish a strong personal brand, a sense of authority, Mm -hmm. understanding. So then you're sought out for those things. Yeah. Um, So I think that's tremendous advice to anyone who is just kind of looking to either break in or break through the space, because it's like you said, it's always moving fast. It's, it's, you know, relatively competitive and, yeah, there's just a lot to keep up on. But at the same time, I think that's what's cool about it. Yeah. It's like we're stagnating. There's always something new to learn. So that's great. So hopefully all of you listeners have learned something new today. I know I have. And Lydia, I'm excited to get my hands on your book and read more about Brand Love. I really appreciate you coming on and being here with us today.
1: Sure. Yeah. Happy to be here.
0: Of course. All right. Well, if we don't have any other questions, we will call it a day. I hope you all have a fantastic weekend be sure to check out the book and we will see you all next week. Thanks. Bye.